This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Today's episode of Worth Your Time is sponsored by the Independent Women's Forum, an educational 501c3 dedicated to developing and advancing policies that aren't just well-intended, but actually enhance people's freedom, choices, and opportunities. IWF works every day to engage and inform women and create a community to discuss how policy issues, including paid leave, healthcare, taxes, energy, minimum wage, and education, impact them and their families. Visit Independent Women's Forum at IWF.org. Hey guys, welcome back to the Worth Your Time podcast. I'm Erica, your host, and I'm so glad you're here today. If you've been listening for a few weeks, I hope you'll hop over to iTunes and give me a rating and review. It only takes a minute, but it helps a lot. I'm talking today with a girl who has a very cool job. She actually sues the government for a living. What does that even mean? Well, we're gonna tell you. Anastasia Bowden is an attorney with the Pacific Legal Institute. She's also a mom of two tinies. At the time of this interview, she was actually seven and a half months pregnant, and you can tell she really loves her job. We're also gonna talk about what it means to be a libertarian, a working mom, and some really interesting cases that she's worked on. We also get into what it means to be an empowered woman, and she's got some of the best advice I've heard to pass down to her kids. Stay till the end on this one, everyone. It's got some real gems. Enjoy my conversation with Anastasia Bowden. So I'm just really excited that we're able to take this time to talk today. And we'll be um, we'll be talking a little bit about your career, your family, and I want to hear more about this really fierce thing I heard you say. I looked you up on a on another podcast, and I heard you say this really fun thing that was, I wake up every day and I sue the government when they violate the Constitution, <laughs> and I just thought I love that so much. And so I think we all want to hear more about it, but uh, let's get started with a little background on you and your family and your career as an attorney with the Pacific Legal Foundation. Sure. Um, Well, I guess my background is uh, I never wanted to be an attorney in the traditional sense. I actually thought that I was going to go work for the government. Um, I always knew that I wanted to do something in public service or, or kind of fighting for somebody's rights, but it turned out that uh, I eventually ended up thinking that the government was doing more harm than good and that uh, I should aim my legal efforts uh, in the name of liberty. So um, here I am, a libertarian lady lawyer. I went to Georgetown and I lived in D.C., you know, in the belly of, of one beast for five years and then came back to California to be closer to my family. And now I'm in the belly of an entirely different beast <laughs> on the West Coast. But yeah, I, I live in Sacramento. I, I have one baby. Well, he's not a baby. He's two and a half. And I have another baby on the way. I'm about seven and a half months pregnant. And I sue the government for a living. And it's a pretty good life. Well, I think we have a few things in common. I also have a... Well, actually, he just turned three. I have a three-year-old and I have a nine-month-old. So... Um, you will soon be living out my life in that, <laughs> and that way with two. And it's not that bad, I have to tell you. I heard a lot of horror stories, and 
it has not, I have not had that experience. So I'm, I'm wishing the best for you in that regard. <laughs> well, thank you for saying that because it's true. A lot of people are like, oh, just wait till you have two. But I can't imagine because having one turns your life upside down. I feel like nothing could be more, uh, you know, more, more crazy than that change. Yeah, I think that was a much bigger change. And I'll, and I'll say much scarier for me. I don't know how you were with that postpartum anxiety, but I had it a lot yes. and everything yes. was just so scary for me. And this time around, I mean, it was slashed in half. I did not think my daughter was going to die all the time like I thought my son was. Right. And um, just so many things that you've already done and you just feel so much more calm, I think. So I hope that you have that experience as well. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you you work representing entrepreneurs and small businesses who are a lot of times stuck in the bureaucracy of government regulations. Um, they're just trying to live out the American dream, basically, you know, what we all want for our lives. What is, uh, if you, could you give us an example of maybe one of the cases you've worked on that people might relate to or understand why you would want to stand up for liberty for these individuals? Sure. Well, most people assume that in particular, I mean, laws in general, but in particular, occupational licensing laws um, come from some good place and that they're there, at least in intention, uh, to protect the public. But what we find is not just that a lot of these laws are anti-competitive in effect and have a severe effect on entrepreneurs, but also that in reality, their very intention is to keep new players from the marketplace. So one of the cases uh, that we bring is called a competitor's veto case. So in some industries, you actually have to get permission from the existing businesses before starting up. And so this, that type of case, I think, uh, it relate, a lot of people can understand it and actually, you know, regardless of what their political affiliation is, um, they understand what we're doing because if there's some purported health or safety aspect, you know, then they say, well, I can get on board with that type of regulation. But here it's obviously anti-competitive. It is, there's, there's no public safety reason to forcing somebody to ask their competitors uh, for permission first. It's obviously just a way for these competitors to basically establish a monopoly. And particularly because the entrepreneurs that we represent in these competitors veto cases, they tend to be in the transportation industry. So they're taxi companies or limousine companies or moving companies. And um, those are industries where we can generally agree that there's not a big threat to public safety there, that it's also one of the easiest ways for entrepreneurs to get started is through an industry like that, because it takes so little capital to get started up. So that that could be a way for someone with very few means or few skills to easily start their own company and become an entrepreneur um, just by buying a truck and, you know, having a map and and having some strength and being able to, to move furniture around. And yet people are denied that opportunity simply uh, to benefit the existing businesses. So, so that's the kind of case we take, these cases where people are just trying to earn a living for themselves. They're, there's obviously no harm to the public, and yet they're being kept out for anti-competitive reasons. So how does a big company that's trying to have a monopoly, how do they work with the government to get these regulations into place in the, fir in the first place? Is it, is it all come back to money? Uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of times they have a lot of resources and there's a lot of lobbying that that's going on. You know, one of the places that we have found, um, the most resistance to these competitors veto, uh, 
uh, law, any sort of reform or lawsuits is in Nevada, for example, where the taxi industry there, I mean, it's just the control that they have over the politicians is crazy. And in fact, we were actually able to um, somehow get a, a legislative fix passed and the governor vetoed it. And when you follow the money, um, you know, it just, it seems that that's where the motivation is coming from. It's always interesting when you go from state to state to see what lobby has the control on the industry. Um, because in, in Nevada, it's, it's the taxis. Um, and then when we went to Montana, we were actually able to get reform there for the taxis, but not the moving companies because the movers really had the hold on the politicians there. So it just depends on where you go, who, who's really the strong lobby there. Um, but of course it's a case of, concentrated benefits and, and dispo- dispersed, uh, uh, um, costs, you know, so where these businesses have a huge incentive to lobby to k- either get these laws on the books or to keep these laws on the books. And all of us, you know, don't really see it happening and we only feel it marginally and the price increases and we don't recognize it. And so it's just the natural tendency of things is for these businesses to, to take a hold of government power when, when power is so expansive that they have the ability to do that. But you've said courts are our last hope. That's where we've won very important vic- victories for liberty. Why are courts our last hope? What words would you say to maybe reiterate to the general public how vitally important it is to elect the right kinds of judges and put the right people in place? Yeah, it, courts are really um, especially the last hope for people who are politically powerless because um, the laws come from the legislature and they're often influenced by people who have you know, political connections or political know-how or money or whatnot. And uh, people who don't have that those same types of resources, they don't fare very well in the legislature. They can't get their interests represented. Um, and so for them, their only option will be to sue when the laws eventually don't go their way, you know, when they're either targeted or they're just left out of the, the sort of legislative process. So, so the courts are a remedy for people to go um, vindicate their constitutional rights when those rights are trampled on by the majority or by the powerful, the powerful groups. Um, so, so that's where we go. But the problem is, is that courts have just become increasingly deferential to the government. Um, they just say, well, you know, these are democratically elected bodies and, and it's democracy and, and we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. And so it makes it very difficult to win these cases. And they say, well, it's not really our job to, to you know, overturn what what uh, what the people have elected. But in reality, that's exactly their job. That's what the Constitution empowers them to do. And it's what they must do to protect our rights. Um, so it's really important to have the right judges there who will actually engage with arguments and won't rubber stamp um, whatever the government's doing. And, you know, as a lawyer and someone that's worked in this field for, for several years, at least, um, what what are your thoughts on the Supreme Court? People say that it's gotten extremely political and partisan and, and how we choose our uh, choose our Supreme Court judges. Would you say that that's true? I have two thoughts on that. One is that I don't think it's so openly political as it is that judges adhere earnestly to a certain uh, 
ideology of the law or a certain type of constitutional interpretation. And those types of interpretations do tend to lead to certain results. So if you're an originalist judge or if you take the Constitution seriously and, and take the role of the judiciary in striking down regulations seriously, you know, more often than not, you're going to come out on the side of liberty. But I think it's simplistic to just say that that's political. Um it's something a little bit deeper than that. But nevertheless, I think, you know, the broader point is that the reason that the courts play such an important part in our life is because our lives have become so political, because the government has so much power and rules so many aspects of our lives that now we need the courts to come in and, and you know, there's all these lawsuits about about how, what the scope of government power should be. So in reality, we should be taking a look at, at the scope of government and saying, you know, if we don't like courts ultimately ruling on these things, you know, maybe the government really has no business enacting a lot of these, uh, these laws in the first place. Um, it's really just a sign of our times about how we take for granted how much regulation is in our life. And then that, that inherently makes the court more powerful. That's true. Now, do you think the, that where we are right now, is that due a lot in part to um, eight years of President Obama? Or is it not a Republican Democrat thing? Because I know Republicans are you know, much more known for less government. However, we often see them actually still <laughs> being on the side of more government on certain issues. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, I once heard David Bowes from the Cato Institute say, you know, the left wants to be your mommy and the <laughs> the right wants to be your daddy. Like they each want <laughs> regulations for depending on what the area is. So I think to some extent, both parties are, are complicit. Um, certainly, one party overall, I think, is more complicit. Yeah. But as a libertarian myself, you know, I say a pox on both their houses. Let's just be consistent, consist- consistently pro-liberty across the board. But uh, yeah, I think we see some some uh, hypocrisy on both sides. So my my audience is not necessarily political in general. So I'm I'm guessing that there are probably people out there that may not 100% know what it means to be a libertarian. Could you could you tell us what that means? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, libertarianism stems from the belief that you know we're all born equal. Nobody has any more claim to a right to control anybody else um, than anyone else, and that we all have a right to self ownership over over our bodies and our property and, and, and how we make use of our bodies and our property. So in general, um, libertarianism is just the belief that really there is no moral justification for government apart from preventing people from doing harm to others. But it doesn't, it takes a narrow scope of harm than some of the political parties. You know, you don't harm somebody by not giving them free health care. Um, you, we only believe in what are called negative rights. You have a you have a right to be free from from some sort of harm, like physical harm, or somebody doing something actively to you, not denying you a sort of benefit. You don't have a right to somebody's um, resources. You don't have a right to somebody's services. You have a you have basically the right to be left alone and to have equal opportunity with everyone else. So, in general, you just see libertarians advocating for. Um, for the ability of people to to pursue their conception of the good life um, free from interference by the government and free from interference by other people if those people are going to do them harm. Um, I think the libertarian mantra is essentially, you know, do no harm to others, allow others to, to pursue 
their lives in the way that they see fit. Nobody knows what's best for you except for you. Now, you you recently worked on a case that has to do with happy hour, which sounds fun. Um, <laughs> so tell us a little bit about that. And then you also had a Washington Post op-ed about it, which is fun. I'm personally um, a big fan of, you know, getting an op-ed published with a with a nice byline in a place like the Washington Post. So tell us about that yeah. case and, and what you wrote about it and why it was important. Yeah, so so in our happy hour case, um, you'd think it'd be one of the 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 lighter cases. So it, it as it happens in Virginia, it's perfectly legal to have happy hour. It's just illegal to talk about it in certain ways. So businesses <laughs> in Virginia they can't advertise uh, happy hour prices, and they can't use any synonyms for happy hour. So they can't be really creative in those happy hour advertisements. You can't use all these puns that are so uh, popular nowadays, like turn down for what Tuesday or uh, Wednesday wind down, or you really just can't be clever. They want you to only use two terms, either happy hour or drink specials. Creativity is not allowed. And why? Why is that? Well, um, ultimately, the government's arguing that if, if businesses are creative, they'll be successful at enticing consumers. And they think that that's going to increase consumption overall. And there's just no evidence that that's true. I mean, I think the assumption could be that just because you're creative and you get somebody to attend happy hour, that doesn't mean that consumption is going up overall. It just means you've you've convinced somebody to come to your restaurant over somebody else's. But it's their contention that, you know, if, if people are allowed to see prices or if they're allowed to, you know, be exposed to puns, that they're just going to go on a drinking frenzy. <laughs> and, you know, one of the problems with that is that government can regulate conduct quite a good deal under the Supreme Court's interpretation of the Constitution. So if the government wanted to say you can only have two drinks at happy hour, it probably could. Or if it wanted to outlaw happy hour altogether, it could probably do that. But they would have to pay the political price for doing that, right? Like they know that's not a popular thing. Mm -mm. People in the D.C. metropolitan area would be horrified if you take away their happy hour. <laughs> yes. So what they're trying to do is they're they're getting at that in a mo in a more um, covert way, and they're subtly, you know, uh, getting their pol trying to accomplish their policy goals by by stifling the speech of people because then you just, you don't, you don't really see what they're doing. You don't see that the government's doing this rather than if they were really honest about it and they just taxed alcohol or they got rid of happy hour, they'd probably have to pay the price for it. So it's a very, you know, sneaky way of going about uh, accomplishing their goals. Who is the person that wins, I guess, if, if they were to get their way on this? I mean, who is the person that's on the other end of this saying, we need to regulate speech on happy hour. And if that happens, then <laughs> I win or something. Yeah, it's interesting. When you look at the um, when you look at the public comments, because Virginia actually did, it used to be that you couldn't advertise happy hour at all. Now it's you can advertise happy hour, but you have to be very bland about it. And you can't say any prices. And when they proposed some of these changes, there was a public comment process. And a lot of this is just outdated, uh, based on outdated notions about drinking. You know, it's 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 harkening back to prohibition, where it's we don't want people going crazy at happy hour and people complaining about what they think is going to happen in Virginia if if advertising is allowed. So you, some of it's just these outdated paternalistic notions, but you also get um, some businesses I think who would favor it because ultimately, if there's no price competition, they say that prices are going to be are going to go up. I mean, that's what the government contends. They they openly admit that they think that if you advertise price, 
there's going to be more competition for prices and prices are going to go down. So people who businesses who subscribe to that might like this because they realize that it's a way of propping up their prices and making a profit for themselves. Um, so those are the two kind of groups, you know, bootleggers and Baptists, as they say, that, <laughs> that, that uh, coalition who comes together to enact laws like this. And so what, what's the status of the case now? Well, this, this case has been the, the fight of my life. Never have I ever seen any government defendant dig in their heels to defend a law like the government has dug in to defend happy hour censorship. It's just incredible. <laughs> so, I mean, this should, this should really be a pretty clear case given Supreme Court precedent in the First Amendment. It's very obvious that what they're doing is unconstitutional here. Um, if, if we're talking about a legal business practice, which we are, and if we're talking about completely truthful information, which we are, the government can't censor it um, just to try to, to control people's behavior. You know, it can't, it can't, it can't censor information just to, to get people to behave how it wants. It yeah. can engage in its own speech. It can tax things, but it can't censor people for paternalistic goals like that under the constitution. So this should be like a really easy case. However, we find that the attorney general's office has, <laughs> they're, they're really taking this, this law seriously. And so, for example, you know, they demanded over 68,000 documents from our client. Oh, my um, gosh. And I've never, I've just never encountered anything like that in a case, let alone about happy hour. Um, and, and these documents are highly irrelevant. They, they want to know, they want all of our profit and loss statements and they want, they want detailed uh, information about every single transaction over the course of six years from eight restaurants or nine restaurants, you know, every restaurant that our client has a financial interest in, even though many of those restaurants are not in Virginia. And this case is really about just that one Virginia restaurant. So they've really bombarded him with some pretty serious um, requests. And as you can imagine, that's very intimidating to a plaintiff, a civil rights plaintiff. Um, it makes you consider, you know, well, would I rather just be censored than have all of my information shown to the public, you know, have to go back six years and dig up these files and it's expensive and it's intimidating. And this is uh, a Chef Jeff's, is that right? That's right. Chef Jeff's, uh, maybe you've been there, but <laughs> I have <laughs> yeah, me too. Uh, after many a Georgetown basketball game. <laughs> Chef well, so but, that, uh, that makes me think of, I know that you guys have also represented some really big cases of the Supreme court. I don't know if you were involved in any of those, but well, one of our, one of our most recent cases was called Minnesota voters Alliance versus Mansky. It was also a first amendment case and it's mm. about wearing political apparel at the polls. So in Minnesota, um, you can't wear a T-shirt uh, that can be considered, well, you used to not be able to wear a T-shirt that had any issue um, on the ballot. So so in Minnesota, they actually said if there was some sort of issue relating to the Vikings stadium, you couldn't wear a Vikings jersey on election day. But what we found was that, you know, our client, for example, um, had been wearing a Don't Tread on Me shirt, right? And so it's they're really going... They have such broad discretion under that statute that it, it has the capacity to be used um, against disfavored political parties. Yeah, well, I, I feel like people don't have any idea of these things going on at, at different levels. Like, I would have n had no idea that that kind of a, a rule or, um, or law was, was in place um, for something so simple as what you 
are allowed to wear. Yeah, the crazy part is I think people assume, like, even if those laws are on the books, you just assume, well, nobody's going to enforce those in a, yeah. in, a, in a crazy manner. And yet our client was, you know, told to take off his shirt or to go home or he was going to get his name written down somewhere and cited. I mean, people, they really, bureaucrats do enforce these laws. The same with the happy hour, uh, happy hour advertising law we see in Virginia. You know, they're regularly doing stings for these happy hour advertising violations. They're issuing citations. They're, they're forcing people to choose between uh, like a five to seven day uh, revocation of their liquor license or paying $500. And Five days without a liquor license to a bar or a restaurant yeah. is a really big deal. So they just pay out the five hundred dollars. It's just like an ATM, you know. They just go around citing people and then demand the five hundred dollars. Um, and it's just it's it's kind of crazy when you see how much these laws actually go enforced. Well, it makes sense um, that you guys exist and that you have a lot of work to do. <laughs> what what drew you to this kind of work, and what is the most exciting part of your job? What do you love about it? Like I said I. I I always wanted to be an attorney because I wanted to do something that I thought was good for the world. You know, I wanted, I was always an argumentative kid. I wanted to be involved in policy in some way. And um, just when I started digging into it, it seemed to me that there were a lot of people who needed free representation um, when they were trying to do really simple, basic things like start a company or um, build a seawall to protect their property or, you know, these 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 things that almost no one would disagree with. Um, and they were being denied for for really egregious reasons. And so um, when I looked into it, Pacific Legal Foundation was one of the only places in the country that did that type of work. And it allowed me to go back to California where my family is. So um, so I took a job here. And I think my favorite part is just you grow so attached to the clients. Um, they're such they're just good people. They're regular people who, particularly my clients, you know, they're just trying to earn a living for themselves and their families and and trying to do really basic things. You know, my client in Nevada with the limousine case, she came here from South Africa um, dreaming to be an entrepreneur and with her husband, you know, they had, he used to work on Volkswagens. He had a, and, um, eventually he had this kind of car obsession and, and they bought an old limousine and their friends thought it was really fun. And then they started renting it out. And anyway, you know, they grow this limousine business and they're just trying to, to make it and to survive and to expand. And they're denied that, that ability for, for absurd reasons. And you grow so attached to these people. And, uh, I really, I wake up and I care, I care about advocating for their interest. I care about the arguments I make. And I think that, you know, it's, it's a, a good for the world to set precedent, um, that we seek. So I, I don't know. It's just, it makes me happy. <laughs> yeah, no, that's awesome. I, I can totally see how you would get very invested in your clients. I mean, you're going to spend hours with them talking to them about their lives and kind of like their deepest, you know, things that they're dealing with. I'm, I was reminded of something like that today. You may have seen it yourself of the Jack, the baker in Colorado that got right. so much press. Um, that I see that he continues to be hounded by people coming into his bakery demanding that he bake, you know, right. different kinds of cakes. And I, I feel for him so much only because um, a friend of mine, Kelsey Harkness over at the Daily Signal did, um, you know, a very in-depth video report and has done a lot of work with him, gone out to Colorado. And so having seen some of her work and talked with her, talking with her about it and seeing this guy's, you know, 
personal testimony as to, you know, why he's made that choice. It's really, even as an observer of this case, is hard to watch. Seems like people are now just bullying him. Just just leave people alone. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Just leave him alone. Like So anyway, that was kind of a non sequitur. But I wanted to bring up a tweet that I saw of yours, and this tweet will maybe get you defined as what we sometimes call in the conservative world as a a problematic woman. I don't know if you've heard that term, but um, that's the term that L. I think it was L. Magazine used to um, describe, you know, basically anyone who's not super lefty. And so your your tweet says here, no one should hire a woman because she's a woman. No one should believe a woman because she's a woman. No one should refuse to hire a woman because she's a woman. No one should disbelieve a woman because she's a woman. And you should hire women when they are qualified. Believe women when they are credible. And that tweet is in response to um, the bill that passed in California where you live um, that says that corporations must um, have a certain number of women on their um, board of directors. Can you mm-hmm. talk about what made you send that tweet and what your reaction was to that bill? Sure. I, I think I was so offended when I saw that that law was going to be passed in California that requires all private companies in California to have at least one woman board member. Um, not because I don't think women should be on boards or not because I don't want more women to be on boards, but because um I think it's such a poor message to send to women. You know, California is such a progressive state. Um, I'm, I'm not going to deny that that sexism still exists in the world, but it's just crazy to me to send the message to to women that anytime you walk into a job, you're being discriminated against. They don't want you there. Um, you know, you can't get a job without the government's help. I mean, that's not empowering to women. It's not empowering to send the message that, that you're constantly disadvantaged and that you can't get a job unless we help you. Um, I, I, I find that, you know, repugnant. I I'm having a little girl in two months and I don't want her to ever to walk into a room and to assume that people have uh, sexist notions against her or to assume that she wouldn't be able to get a job without the government's help. And not only that, but I think it's affirmatively bad for women because then you get, you know, women being hired to fill this quota and you are naturally going to get people who assume then that women didn't get there based on their merit, but they got there because of this requirement. Um, it does a disservice to women and it, and it, and it makes them look like, you know, uh, mandated picks rather than qualified picks undermines everything that women do to work to get to where they are, in my opinion. Um, So I was just so, so horrified by that law. You know, I think it's morally wrong. I think in a way, I think that discriminating against someone because they're a woman is, is equally bad as giving someone a leg up simply because they're a woman, because, um, because it's the same arbitrary notion underlying both. It's the notion that, that it, it means something necessarily, um, just because you're a woman, when in reality, I think we just should want the best people for the jobs to to, to fill those jobs. And and women have inherent qualities that are going to make them good at, at filling certain positions um, naturally, and they don't need they don't need any sort of mandate or or discrimination for or against them. Mm-hmm. Now, you obviously have a lot of very well thought out values and beliefs. Um, did you grow up in an environment where you were learning those things? Or were th- was was that something that you kind of developed later on in life? No, I grew up um, with a single mom. She was a, a, a working mom. And uh, she's a very strong person. And I don't know if that 
that you know, I never once, you know, thought that we were disadvantaged or that she couldn't do something um, or that, you know, she, I just always felt like women were, were extremely capable. And I always felt like I could walk in somewhere and, and get any job I wanted. And I think that's the most empowering mentality for women. I don't know really where, where that came from. <laughs> <laughs> well, was your mom political at all? Or did you develop political um, thoughts and wanting to work in that kind of knowledge or something like that? Yeah, no, my mom wasn't political. My, my, I didn't really wasn't really exposed to any politics until college. And you know, what's I, kind of ironic is I went to UC Santa Barbara, which is an incredibly liberal school. And actually, you know, for a good portion of being there, um, was pretty liberal myself, because I just, I wanted the what was the best for people. And I thought that the government was the best way to go about getting that. And it's only um, later when I started to realize that that the best conditions for human flourishing, the best conditions for equality, the best conditions for progress and innovation and, um, uh, you know, medicine, innovation in medicine and, and, and quality of life, um, those, the best conditions for those things happen in a freer market, um, in a freer society. And, and so that's when I started to turn more to libertarianism and, and see that as my, my calling. And I think it's important, you know, earlier you were asking about libertarianism and it's funny trying to describe it because I do think people have so many preconceptions about it, that it's this really radical ideology or something. <laughs> and also that it's, that it's an unfeeling ideology, that it's about everyone for himself. Um, because, you know, because we don't mandate helping people then that we don't care about other people. And I really do feel it important to spread the message that, that a big part of libertarianism is the belief that our ideology is the best for people materially at the end of the day. Um, that, that it's only, only in a free society that, um, you get incredible innovations and, and, and progressions in, in people's way of lives. And, uh, so I find it important to, to represent that and to, you know, because I think libertarians can be a little bit analytical and <laughs> they don't always present it in this warm way. And, and it's important for me, for people to know that, Hey, libertarians care too. <laughs> I want, I'm going to ask you another question and this, say this because, um, I always hear that people hate this question when they're women, they say, nobody ever asked this of a man, but I say, um, I actually like this question. I'm a woman, so I feel like I can ask it, but I love to hear how people, kind of balance their personal lives and their and their professional lives and you have a two-year-old and you have a baby and you have a really cool important job how do you kind of manage your life in a way that works for you and do you have any habits or hacks that you use daily to kind of keep yourself on track or anything uh, that you could share? Yeah, you know, um, I don't know, this is maybe a totally different direction than what you're thinking. <laughs> but it just, I guess it piqued my interest because earlier you were talking about, you know, sort of that postpartum anxiety. And, and, and I had a lot of that too. I certainly had a, a lot of um, anxiety about my health. I was just constantly worried about not being here anymore to, to, to see my kid grow up, which mm -hmm. seemed like, you know, the most important thing for me was just every wedding that I went to after my son was born. I just thought I can't wait to be at my son's wedding. And I just, I worried about that so much. I think I developed this neuroses. Yes, about, that's, about that's a, I think I totally get that. Every time I get on a plane, I just right. start getting like panicky. <laughs> 
Right. Yeah, exa- me too. Me too. And never before. And I have to fly all the time. And I, I think the same thing. Anyway, I've just been kind of focusing. I've been reading a lot of books on, on stoicism and um, it also gets a bad rap. Speaking what, of what is that? I don't even know. <laughs> so yeah, most people think of stoicism as, as, you know, when they say stoic, they think of people being, again, really unfeeling. Mm-hmm. Um you know, kind of like robots or statues or automatons. But really stoicism is about um, managing your reactions, not being overreactive and only and realizing that you can you can't control the way that people behave. You can only control your reactions to it. And so trying to make your reactions more logical so that you are more even keeled um, and you only, you know, you only get invested in things overly invested, I guess, in, in things that you have control over. Cause when you don't have control over them, it doesn't, doesn't make sense to, to, to obsess over them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also it has part of it is the idea that, you know, time flows in one direction. I mean, things you can live in the past, but the time's still moving. You know, you can sit back and overanalyze, you know, what you sit at a meeting or, or, or what have you. Um, but in the meanwhile, time is moving forward and time is finite. And so you kind of have to just move with the tide. Um, and so I've I've found this philosophy to be very helpful in um, making me more um, accepting of, of time moving on, of um, not having control over every single thing, not obsessing over things that I don't have control over. Um, I just think it's made me a better, a better mom and a better, and allowed me to have a better balance. You know, I, it used to be that after my son was born, I felt guilty when I was at work for not being with my son. And when I was with my son, I felt guilty because I had so much work to do. And so I was <laughs> always feeling guilty everywhere. And I think, um, I think this philosophy has really allowed me to kind of just have a better equilibrium and, and be present where I am and to not, uh, to not worry so much. Yeah. I think I should read that book because I was just (laughs) in therapy yesterday talking about how I feel guilty all the time. (laughs) Right. Like, and you know, those two things that you mentioned specifically are huge, huge ones. Other things too, like I have a guilt complex and, um, it is very hard to just kind of accept yourself and like to say, it's okay. And, you know, be where you are and all those, I mean, kind of cliche things almost, but um, right. I like that. I think I would love to get that book name and we'll, we'll put that in the show notes so people can check it out. Great. Um, now we know that you are a mom and a lawyer. Do you have any other things that you like to do? For- yeah, it's funny. Um, I was at lunch with my, my colleague the other day and, uh, he and his wife and they asked me that and I said, I don't know, do I? Because you know, you feel like when you're a mom my whole life and it was kind of nice because they actually reminded me, No, you have all these other interests. You know, you kind of forget. No, I am a human being. I have a lot of I have a lot of interests. Yeah. Um, I well, I love Jane Austen. I'm rereading all of the Jane Austen novels. I've been trying to learn the ukulele, but <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> when I can, I try to take just a couple minutes out. It's fairly easy to learn as it turns out. Out, play the piano. I'm really into games. I'm a gamer. So uh, yeah. my husband and I like to play board games, any type of games. We play Jeopardy against each other. Oh, I mean, we fun. can make a game out of anything. That's so fun. I like board games. What are you going to, are you going to be, um, do you have any shows lined up to binge watch when you're on maternity leave? Oh, I've been thinking about that. Um, <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> yeah, that is a good one. You know, I don't know because I feel like I've been out of the, the TV game for so long. Um, I really enjoy documentaries. Yeah. So I was thinking about just having a documentary fest. Well, I redid uh, Grey's Anatomy all the way through, so 
It was there's <laughs> fifth, nice. there's like 14 seasons, so it took a really long time, but it was good. I liked it. Um, yeah. Okay, so we got a couple more questions. End of the podcast questions. What celebrity would you have dinner with, and why? So I think there's two. You know, living and not living. Living. I think um, I've been lucky enough to to have met like a lot of my personal um, heroes. Thinking about, well, who do I want to meet? Is there anyone I really care about? <laughs> and um, someone I really would love to meet is Paul McCartney because I'm a huge Ooh. Beatles fan and he seems like such a nice cheery guy and of course he is a musical genius and he's a Beatle I mean I love the story he tells about how some days he wakes up and he looks in the mirror and he's like I was a Beatle (laughs) (laughs) I know I still find it I'm still like I'm like is he how old is he I feel like he must be very old at this point Yeah, I think he's in his late 70s or something. He's getting up there. I like that answer. Did you have another one? Yeah, well, this is kind of funny and probably pretty dorky. But because of this whole stoicism thing, you know, I've been... uh, I've been listening to to a lot of writings by Marcus Aurelius, mm-hmm. and he seems like such an interesting dude because I'm, of course, libertarian, so I don't really do well with authority. And Marcus <laughs> Aurelius was, you know, essentially a despot. But he, if you're going to live under a despot, he's the one to live under. He was a very enlightened guy and, um, you know, really had this – he's one of the pioneers of stoicism sort of and, and, and you know, came from a really good place and, and, and wanted people to live – you know, free of their preoccupations and seem like, you know, that would be good for me is to meet to meet a ruler who uh, who was the best to live under. Okay, what's a personal goal that you'd like to accomplish in the next five years? Well, this is probably pretty ambitious, but I really would like to uh, I really would like to litigate at the Supreme Court. It's wow. it's a dream for any constitutional lawyer, and and luckily at my law firm we've we've had a lot of cases there recently, and we've been very successful. So it's not it's not that far out. It's, you know, it's our goal. It's why we're here. It's why we litigate. That's our entire goal is to get to the Supreme Court. So, but you know, they, they only accept what, like 0.1% of cases per term. So, so it's uh, five years might be a little ambitious, but that's, we're going to set it as a goal anyway. There could be in the next four years, another opening on the Supreme Court. How does that make you feel when you think about going through that process again as a country? Yeah, well, it's interesting, right? Because even with, um, even with the last confirmation process, it's almost like that's all over now. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's so crazy the the news cycle, how it's, people have already moved on. Like that was the most intense thing and, and very divisive and, you know, even caused rifts with my friends and whatnot. And yeah. yet then everyone moves on so quickly. Kind of like, well, it's so I mean it's so similar to the Clarence Thomas thing you know that happened and then we move on and Clarence Thomas is an esteemed member of the Supreme Court for however right. long he's been on there and it will be the same with Kavanaugh so good oh just so you look at Gorsuch and like he's even you know uh, kind of a the left is he's growing on the left because he buddies with uh, Kagan in all of these cases for criminal defendants rights and for uh, you know First Amendment and things like that and it's like once they actually get on the court then people have a chance to actually evaluate their qualifications. And of course, these people are all extremely qualified. Are you a member of the Federalist Society? Yeah, actually, I am and co-president of our chapter here in Sacramento. What is the Federalist Society? Yeah, well, it's a group of uh, conservative and libertarian, mainly lawyers um, who get together and, you know, have really interesting talks and 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 discuss their ideas. And, you know, they're, they're labeled as so extreme. But in reality, you know, in, in in law school, the Federal Society was one of the most balanced organizations out there. They 
always invite somebody from the other side to come in and to check their, you know, their, their viewpoint and, um, to allow debate. I mean, debates are one of the biggest things that they do. And, and I think they're so instrumental to, to representing the other sides in law schools in particular, because law schools are, you know, overwhelmingly the, the staff and, and body is, uh, is very liberal. And so they provide a counterpoint. They're really important for that. And, uh, but they also, foster debate. And I think that's, that's really healthy for society. Okay. What is the best advice that you want to pass on to your children? Yeah. Well, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, especially being uh, pregnant. And um, I think something that occurred to me lately is that for a long time in school and in law school, and even after law school, I had the tendency to not speak up at meetings and to really take a lot of time to develop my own personal feelings and to become very confident in them before speaking up because I was so afraid of being wrong. And it only occurred to me recently that you don't have to take being wrong as catastrophic because being wrong is how you learn how to be right. Being wrong is only catastrophic if you stop and you don't learn from it and then it becomes a failure. But if you take that as a tool to to improve, um, there's no negative stigma with being wrong. It's actually a good thing. It's a tool. It's useful for you. So now I finally, you know, now that I'm 31, I finally feel confident you know, just saying what I think and then putting it out there and letting people comment one way or the other. And if it turns out that I'm wrong, or if it was a bad idea, then learning from that and moving on. And it's just been very empowering for me personally. And when I think back, you know, throughout my schooling and childhood and about how paralyzed I was by that fear, um, I wish I would have known that when I was younger. So I think that's something I really want to instill in my kids is is using failure, um, not seeing it in a, as a bad thing. It's not inherently bad. It's really the only way you can get better is through failure. And so it's actually a necessary step in becoming a better person or a better thinker, or a better worker, a better family member, what have you, and, and you have to just accept that. So, so that's something I've been thinking about lately. Okay, I think that's great advice. Uh, last question. Do you have a book or a TV show or a podcast that you could recommend? As far as books go, uh, uh, well, everything Jane Austen does <laughs> is fantastic. I've also been reading this book called Cork Dork. It's about mm-hmm. a woman who uh, decided that she wanted to enter the the wine industry, which seems so you know unaccessible to many of us. And so she spends a year basically preparing for one of the hardest sommelier uh, exams in the country. And it's just about her adventures working in restaurants and kind of becoming familiar with this, this industry. And it's just really interesting to because like I said, I feel like it's so uh, inaccessible to so many of us and 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 for her to kind of start from the bottom and work up and talk about about the nature of wine tasting and how that industry kind of works and how there's really something to wine tasting, but it's also just inherently subjective and arbitrary in a way. Um, I just think it's been a lot of fun. As far as TV, you know, um, kind of funny. I don't, I don't watch a lot. I, I like documentaries and things like that, but somehow we stumbled upon the show called Split, Splitting Up Together, which is with Jenna Fisher, who's from The Office, and I mm-hmm. love The Office. And it's just a 30-minute show, and it's very light, and we've just been enjoying it. 
Um, I, it's very happy and funny, even though it's about this couple that's there. Basically, they're getting a divorce, but they have kids, so they don't want to um, move out of the house. So they basically rotate. The mom stays in the house, the dad in the garage, and then they rotate every week and hilarity kind of ensues. So um, even though it's sad because it's, you know, in general about divorce, but there's there's still some things going on. There's kinks being worked out between the couple and, and it's just very funny and quirky and it's 20 minutes, doesn't take a lot of your time and, and very entertaining. Yeah, it is nice to find those shows that you can just kind of like flip on and you don't have to think too hard about them. You can you can watch them while you're folding the laundry or doing something else too. Exactly, like the, the before you're going to sleep show. So you're not watching, you know, Breaking Bad before you <laughs> go off to dream. Yeah, so you dream about meth labs. And I've definitely done that, watching like Game of Thrones right before I go to bed. <laughs> well, Anastasia, thank you so much for coming on today. It was so cool to hear about what you do and learn a little bit more about libertarianism and what that means and maybe clear up some confusion for some people. I hope you loved that conversation with Anastasia and maybe learned a little something new as well. I've got so many great guests lined up for the coming weeks. Please be sure to subscribe so that you'll have those episodes downloaded automatically. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'll see you next Tuesday. This episode was brought to you in part by the Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, visit dts.edu podcast.